So we're continuing this morning with Peter's uh, remarkable Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2. It is the first proclamation of the gospel after the ascension. It is the first Christian sermon ever preached. And thus, uniquely instructive, I think. It's the inspired apostolic interpretation of the gift of the Spirit. And we saw previously that Peter sees the outpouring of the Spirit as the fulfillment. He makes this connection immediately as the fulfillment of what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In fact, we left off in the middle of Peter's sighting of Joel chapter 2, which he cites at some length. And we saw two things, both monumental things. First, we saw already in this sermon that the Spirit is given from heaven in the last days. So, Christ's appearance, the whole complex of his life and his death, his resurrection, his ascension, culminating in Pentecost, that whole reality ushers in the end. It ushers in the age to come. It ushers in the last days. The resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead on the last day. The gift of the Spirit sent by that risen Jesus is the seal and the pledge and the beginning and the down payment and the earnest of your future inheritance. So this life tasted now in Jesus Christ by the Spirit through faith. Right, This life is not some different thing than that which is to come in the future. Your spiritual life is the beginning of that which is to come. And so there's no facet then of her life, of the church's life, no corner of her existence, which is non-eschatological. You knew with a sermon title like this, it wasn't going to be long. There's no corner of the church's life which is merely historical. There's no point at which the church can say, yeah, yeah, that's out, that's out there. We'll keep that out there. We'll deal with some, yeah, I don't know, godly principles or something here. The life that we have tasted now in Jesus Christ is that life begun in you. Precisely because the life of the church is, at every point, the resurrection life of Jesus. Right? Precisely because that is true, the church is a people belonging to that age, to that order of things, a people of the new creation. Thus, the church is always in the last days. From its inception to the end of the age, all of our days are last days. From Christ's appearance to his appearance again in glory. So Peter tells us, The last days foretold by the prophets have arrived. With the Messiah comes the Messianic age. And this characterizes us, right? The church is now a people who live in what is called the overlap of the ages. We exist in this tension between two ages. While we live in this age, 
We do not belong to this present evil age, as Paul calls it. We do not, while we live in this world, we do not belong to the form of this world which is passing away. We belong already to the order of the resurrection, to the age to come, to heaven itself, to the kingdom of God which has come and is coming. And that creates great tension in the Christian life. Secondly, we saw that in these last days, God will pour out his spirit profusely and abundantly on all flesh. We call this the great democratization of the life of God. Regardless of sex or age or social status, the spirit creates a royal priesthood where all have heavenly access. And where all can speak forth the word of God. Sons and daughters, young men, old men, male and female servants, all the saints of God have now drunk of the spirit of God. The spirit of Pentecost. And this morning then, we'll continue with Peter's unpacking of the citation from Joel, because we stopped in the middle of it. We'll make two points. The day, they're there on your outline in the bulletin. The day... And the gospel, the day and the gospel. So first, the day. Now, Peter does something here which we might be a little surprised by. Like, he cites more of Joel's prophecy than we might expect. Pentecost is the fulfillment of what Joel spoke about, and that includes, Peter says, in verse 19 and 20. Listen now, he says this. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent, or the great and glorious day. This language of celestial disturbances, of creation being shaken, is regularly used by the prophets. We heard it used by Isaiah in the Old Testament reading this morning. It's regularly used by the prophets of the historical judgments on a nation or a kingdom. But here, Peter reminds us that all of those historical judgments, all of those days of the Lord, they're mere anticipations of a much greater and final day of the Lord. In fact, you can find this in the prophets, too, if you just read the prophets more widely. You'll see they use this language both for historical judgments and for some future final judgment. Scholars call this decreation language, to decreate, to tear the creation apart. The, the sun becomes black and the moon turns to blood. You find this language in Revelation chapter 6, for example, where it clearly refers to the last day to the coming day of judgment, and not merely to a historical or a political judgment. There are all these great signs, fire, angels, trumpets, clouds, associated with the parousia, the the coming of the Lord, in various other New Testament texts. This language, thus, refers to the coming of the end. That's what we'd expect so far for tracking Peter. It refers to the last day of the last days. That's why this citation from Joel is bracketed by, in the last days, the great and magnificent day. This day is the last day of the last days. 
So it refers to the coming of the kingdom of God in its absolute fullness, in its climax, which is a central theme in the book of Acts. So, like, more accurately, these are the signs which precede immediately the kingdom coming in fullness. So you think, okay, well, can we say something more specific about these signs? Well, they're clustered together. Think back to Jesus' birth, his appearance. We've already said he brings the end. We'd expect these signs then. And we got them, right? When he appears, there are wonders in the heavens, angels and glorious light. And he did wonders on the earth. And at his death, there was an earthquake. And there was darkness over the whole land. And the sun's light failed, we are told. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And even saints in Jerusalem came out of their graves because these signs are signs of the resurrection of the dead. So the end and the signs of the end of the end were already underway when Jesus first appeared because he ushers in the last days. And the apostles throughout the book of Acts, they do signs, they do wonders. And the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. is described in language similar to this language of celestial signs. So you have a whole cluster of signs with the birth of Christ, with his earthly ministry, with the apostles, with the destruction of Jerusalem. They all point forward to the signs Peter quotes from Joel in our text. And we know We know that Peter has the second coming in mind because these signs are all done, verse 20 says, before the day of the Lord comes. And then Peter tells you what day he's talking about. The great and magnificent day. This is no mere historical judgment that's in view here. Or in some translations, more accurately, the great and the glorious day. This is not a reference to the Lord's first coming. It's certainly not a reference to 70 A.D., about which the book of Acts does not care. This day is the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of resurrection, as the rest of the book of Acts will show. And by calling it, when the apostle calls it the great and magnificent day, he's clearly referring to the end of history. Now, you, we would tend to think, okay, I would just cite the first few verses of Joel then, Peter, and leave the day of the Lord stuff for later. But he sees the day of the Lord set in motion by Pentecost. This day is great and glorious because it's the day of justice, the day of death's destruction. It's the day that the Son of Man will come in his glory and sit on his throne judging the nations. It's the day the church yearns for. Paul tells us, the Apostle Paul, in Titus, he uses the same two words that Peter uses here. Peter calls the day great and glorious. Paul says that the blessed hope of the church is the appearing of the glory, there's the first word, of our great, there's the second word Peter uses, God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we know what the great and magnificent day is. 
The great and glorious day is elsewhere in the New Testament called the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 1. It's called the day of the Lord Jesus, 2 Corinthians 1. It's called the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1. It's called the day of Christ in Philippians 1 and in Philippians 2. It's called the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5 and again in 2 Thessalonians 2. And this very apostle Peter calls it the day of the Lord in 2 Peter 3. So the day of the Lord is the day that the one who this very sermon tells us has been made Lord in Christ. The one who the rest of Acts unveils as the one who has been appointed to judge the living and the dead. It's his day. So Peter has this citation from Joel. You can step back now. The last days, and at the end, the great and magnificent days. The last days last until the great and magnificent day. Right? The supper proclaims the death of the Lord until he comes again in glory. The church, male and female, drinks from the Spirit until the last day. The church preaches the gospel until the great and magnificent day. So again, we might ask, why does Peter include these verses from Joel? They don't seem to be a part of the Pentecost event. Well, the answer is, and I hope we can guess this by now, right? The answer is that the coming of the last days in Jesus through the Spirit, is the coming forward of the great day of the Lord. It is the inbreaking of the end. And thus, Pentecost means for us both mission, right? The church propelled outward to the ends of the earth to proclaim the gospel, and the church propelled out toward the coming day of the Lord, looking to it and hastening it. That's the day. Notice now, a brief defense of this sort of preaching from Peter. This is the first Christian sermon. He's maybe 30 words into the sermon. And he's refer- he has bracketed all 30 words with the eschaton. Right? The first line of Christian preaching is, in the last days. And about the fourth line is, the great and magnificent day. We'll come back to this. So the second point is the gospel. This is really simple, beloved. Between Pentecost and the great and glorious day, the church has a mission. The church has a task, a commission. It's not complicated. It's quite simply to preach the word, right? To proclaim the gospel. That's it. That's it. No partisan political agenda. No being taken captive to other agendas, no matter how noble. One grand calling, regardless of current events, preach the gospel, the everlasting gospel. On this, the church is obsessively narrow-minded. She cannot be all things to all cultural people. She has been given the keys to the kingdom, not the keys to America. The keys to the kingdom of heaven are not the keys to the economy. Christians may have opinions about these things, but the church has been given a monopoly in one area only, and that is the area of word and sacrament to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. 
Through the ministry of the word, the church opens the kingdom to the repentant, shuts it to the unrepentant. Between the last days, which were inaugurated, and the great and magnificent day, the church has one task. Proclaim the gospel. Thus, verse 21 tells us, Between Pentecost and the great day, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The, The Lord in the day of the Lord and the Lord whose name is to be called upon for salvation are one and the same. And that now means that what was Yahweh's prerogative now also belongs to Jesus of Nazareth. He's the Lord who comes in the day of the Lord. Right? He's the one who saves people. So to call upon the name of the Lord simply means to believe the gospel. Right? To confess the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul says this in Romans 10. We heard it in our call to worship. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead... You will be saved. That's it. Right? I don't see a lot of doing good works in that text. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then on the great and glorious day you'll be saved. Right? His exaltation, his pouring out of the Spirit, mean that he is Lord of all. Lord of Jew, Lord of Gentile, as Paul continues in Romans 10, he says this, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And how does, how does Paul end this little bit of Romans 10? He ends it by citing our text from Acts 2, from Joel 2. Right? He bestows his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That is always the ever-present remedy that we need, beloved. To cast ourselves upon this mercy, to call upon the name of the Lord. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And as long as the gospel is being proclaimed and people are calling upon the name of the Lord, the great and magnificent day has not yet come. But the fact that all of this happens in this bracket between the last days and the great day, right? that intensifies the the urgency of this summons. Preaching takes place in this bracket. The last days, the great and magnificent day. And this means, I hope this doesn't surprise you, this means that all preaching is eschatological preaching. There's no other kind. It's done preaching done in light of the end. Here's John the Baptist. Here's John the Baptist describing Jesus' public ministry before it even started. Here's what he says. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the, what is he? What, what is John the Baptist doing? Why is he talking about what Jesus will do at his second advent before Jesus is even publicly baptized into his ministry? You guys know now. You know the answer to that. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, and to burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. What kind of a way to start your public preaching ministry is that? Doesn't that seem to like get the end at the, in, up at the beginning? Yes, it's the whole point. There's a kind of sifting that happens in the preaching of the gospel before the final sifting of wheat and chaff comes on the great and glorious day. So what we are proclaiming in the gospel is the gift of life, but it's eschatological life, it's resurrection life, it's new creation life, and it's thus deliverance from that final judgment. That's the gospel. Sometimes, I have friends who I sometimes think, if you listen to them, they would think that the gospel was given so that you could be delivered from liberalism or cultural marginalization. But the gospel is given that you might be delivered from the wrath and curse of God and from the fire of this eschatological day. Don't worry about the other enemies. That's why the gospel is given. We are to wait for his son from heaven, 1 Thessalonians 1, who delivers us from the wrath which is to come. So if the wrath and curse of God are really, really big and being delivered for them are really, really huge in your imagination... Then our current cultural situation, while needing to be addressed and real, shrinks down to the right size. The gospel is is this deliverance because the second Adam has borne our wrath and curse. And so Paul charges Timothy in this fashion. He says this to him. Now, if you've ever been at an ordination service in a Reformed denomination, often you'll hear this text preached. I myself have used it to charge charge ministers who are being ordained. But Paul charges Timothy in this fashion. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. That's so far so good. We would do that. Who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing. He's talking about the second appearing here. Because he's talking about the Christ who comes to judge the living and the dead. I charge you in the presence of the Christ who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out. So preaching is before the one who is to judge the living and the dead. And get this. Preaching is by his appearing. Think about this. This is not to say, the point here is not, um, Timothy, I want you to charge people that they should preach knowing that Jesus is going to come again. That's not the point. Or that they should preach in the light of his appearing. That's not what he says either. He says they should preach by his appearing. <laughs> like something of the eschatological fire and unveiling of Christ in the second advent is how they preach. Like preaching starts in the eschaton, and then it speaks into the earth. That's what he says. The appearing, what our text calls the day, is what charges preaching with its total significance and its fire. In other words, imagine being at one of these services, right? And you watch a minister being charged to preach out of and from and by means of the eschaton. 
Thus, in light of the coming day, we preach, we bear witness to Christ the Lord. For there is no other name, we'll learn this next in a couple chapters in Acts, no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. So let me make two points in closing. The first first one is this. The day and the gospel are locked together. Like the day and the gospel, you can't separate these things. Like like you have the gospel now and the day of the Lord later. When When they're separated, the church loses its heavenly fragrance. It becomes captive to this age. Right? And then preaching either becomes moralistic, right? We should try and be good people. We've got to do better. Or it can become therapeutic. Here's some individual hope for your private devotional life. Or preaching just becomes mobilizing for the culture war, right? We have to do our job better so the culture will be healed. This is what happens when you separate the day from the gospel, The church, without this message of the appearing, of the great and glorious and magnificent day, again, not tacked on, but all the way down into her DNA and in her bones, the church without this really just becomes a lobbying group with a bunch of spiritual veneer on the top. Right? It ends up setting its affection on things below and not on things that are above. It ends up... Tending to things that are visible and not the invisible. Second and last, notice this in our text. The message is profoundly Christ-centered. Right? This is what it means to be Christ-centered. The gift of the Spirit, and this has been a problem in the history of the church. I think we could admit this, right? The gift of the Spirit is not to lead to all sorts of strange mysticism or to a preoccupation with various spiritual phenomenon. Because the spirit cannot be detached from the worship of the ascended Jesus Christ. Right? In short, the spirit always directs us to Christ. The spirit mediates Jesus Christ to us. When the spirit comes, Christ comes. And thus our eyes are directed by the Pentecostal spirit to where they belong, to Christ. But again, when we talk about this, we don't mean Christ as, a, as an, you know, um, you know, abstractly. We mean the Christ who is now exalted and transfigured in heavenly glory. That's the Christ we're beholding. So the mighty gift of the Spirit is the gift of this Christ. And he then, through the Spirit, fills up the church, gifts it for service, gifts it for worship, gifts it for witness. And so the day of the Lord here is none other than the day of Christ. And the gospel proclaimed in light of that day is none other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here, the name, the divine name that we and all flesh must call upon, right, is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must call upon that name for salvation before the great and magnificent day, the last day of the last days. Call upon it. If you have not done so, call upon it. If you have done so, continue to call upon it. And you shall be saved. Amen.